Morning, church. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, which is located on page 330 in the blue, uh, blue Bible located in your seat backs. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take one of these as a gift from us here at Northridge Life. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've already accomplished for your glory this morning. We thank you for the songs of praise that acknowledged who you were, who you are, what you've done. God, we thank you for just the prayers of the saints that have gone up at this point. We thank you for the reminder of the truth of your law in the catechism. And now, God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear and receive, to believe and apply the word of God. We thank you that there is nothing like it on earth. There is no higher authority. There's no greater anchor for our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be fully attentive. And so, Lord, we know that in ourselves, in our brokenness and sinfulness, we have no ability to do that. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to make us attentive to your words, that, that they would capture us and they would, that they would shape us, mold us, conform us into your image, God. I pray for myself as I preach these words, God, that, that I would speak according to your revealed truth and not according to the vain imaginations of my own mind. Thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name. I pray amen. You can be seated. Um, well, I got to say, um, it's good to have Tyler back, isn't it? Um, after he was gone for several months, you guys know that he was doing, uh, he, he's in the Air Force and was doing an assignment in Montgomery, Alabama. And I'm sure that he loved the heat wave and the humidity combination that was so refreshing, I'm sure. But I tell you what, you let the guy go away for a few months and he comes back and he just reads the longest catechism ever in the history of mankind. So anyway, we forgive you, Tyler. So <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um, 
So we're in a series, if this is your first Sunday, on the attributes of God. And when we talk about the attributes of God, they fall into one of two kind of broad categories. They, we're either speaking, when we speak about uh, individual attributes, we're either speaking about incommunicable attributes of God or communicable attributes of God. Now, what do we mean by that? When we talk about the incommunicable attributes of God, we're speaking of his attributes that he cannot share with his creatures, with his creation, things like his independence. There is no creature on earth that, that enjoys the independence that God enjoys. We're talking about things like his self-existence. We've already been over this, but every other living thing on earth is derived. Even non-living things like rocks and asteroids in space, all of those things are derived. They have an origin. God exists completely by himself. No one can share in his sovereignty. If someone else, any other being, either earthly or heavenly, shares in his sovereignty, guess what? God ceases to be sovereignty. Sovereignty is not a thing that can be shared. No one can share his omnipresence or his eternity, and on and on and on we could go. But God alone, when we talk about those types of attributes, the incommunicable ones, God alone can be described as having those attributes. They cannot be communicated. That means they're incommunicable. They can't be communicated to his creation in such a way that we can experience them. I will never have five minutes or five seconds of my life where I say, hey, I was completely sovereign over everything for those five seconds. It can't happen. It's impossible. Um, and the, But they're revealed to us, these incommunicable attributes, the reason we even know about them is because they're revealed to us in God's word as being fundamental to his nature. Almost everything that we've talked about so far in this series has uh, applied to God's incommunicable attributes. Because we have God's self-revelation in Scripture, we can acknowledge those attributes that even though we can't experience them, and we can define them, but we can never fully comprehend them. Let me demonstrate that. How many of you have a perfect understanding of the concept of eternity? You say, yeah, I get that. Time goes on and on and on. Well, you don't have a perfect concept of eternity. Because eternity also has no beginning, and it is outside of what we think of as time. I've said that a few times in this series. How many of you have a great handle on God's omnipresence? Meaning that not the borders, God doesn't have borders, but the center of his being is everywhere right now in both the physical and the spiritual realms. How many of you have a really good handle on that? You may acknowledge that it's true, but your brain cannot wrap around that because you've never experienced anything like it. The communicable attributes, on the other hand, are attributes of God that humans can, uh, in some measure, and only by grace, possess. These include love. God is love, and he allows us to give and receive love as, as human beings. Wisdom is a communicable attribute. Justice is a communicable attribute. Our possession of these communicable attributes, the ones that we can share with God, is always given to us in a finite measure. And, and oftentimes, have you ever experienced this? When you're experiencing something that has finds its perfection in God, like love or wisdom, that oftentimes in me, those things are in contradiction. Have you noticed that yourself? That they don't always align with everything else that I am. 
But God possesses all of his attributes, either communicable or incommunicable, fully and perfectly without any kind of division or contradiction. In fact, in our lives, when we talk about the communicable attributes, the process of sanctification is seen when we possess his communicable attributes to a progressively greater degree, when they're growing in us and bearing fruit, when we become more loving, more just, more generous, these attributes are also known in the scripture as the fruit of the Spirit. Because they're something that is not born of us, they're born of the Spirit. But if, as you read this, it sounds like a a list of the attributes of God. Um, Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Are these all things that God possesses fully and perfectly? Of course they are. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And so it should be our daily prayer to submit to the Holy Spirit as he incorporates the word of God in our own prayers to mold us into the image of Christ, forming in us a character which increasingly displays the communicable attributes of God. In other words, what we want people to do is to be able to look at our lives and see, I see the family resemblance to your father in heaven. We, we want them to, to see that. Have anybody ever walked up to you and said, do you have your mom's eyes or your, or your dad's nose or whatever? Well, this is the same principle on a spiritual level. As the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and cultivates the fruit of the Spirit in us, we begin to look more like God, never perfectly, but more like God, so that we can represent him well in the world. Now, said all that, today we're going to look at the holiness of God, which is one way to say it is it's God's prime communicable attribute. He's commanded us. The reason I say that is because we know it's communicable because he commanded us in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament to consistently pursue holiness. In Leviticus 20, verse 7, He says, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Flip over to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14, and we read these words, strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So in the Old Testament, we're commanded to be holy, to consecrate ourselves, and the New Testament, we're commanded to pursue holiness, um, and without it, we're promised that no one will see the Lord. A few years back, I stumbled on one of the most meaningful books that I have ever read outside of the Bible. And that book, as many of you know what I'm going to say, was The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And I have was so moved, so impressed by that book that I have made it a personal life goal of mine to persuade as many people before I'm dead to read that book. Uh, I've, uh, I've seen in that book a majesty of God that before I'd rarely considered deeply enough or even encountered. The, the holiness of God, though he wrote hundreds of books, is clearly R.C. Sproul's magnum opus, and you should all read it if you haven't already. It shows how God's holiness should be the driving force behind our worship. What do I mean by that? We worship because God is holy. It should be the the motivation for our discipleship. We obey God because why? Because he's holy. 
Meditation on the holiness of God serves to elevate our thoughts of God to heights that are impossible to reach by man-centered means. Why do we reject the idea of making this Sunday morning worship look like a rock concert. Why do we do that? Why do we, why do I not take my sermon text from the Barbie movie in order to, to preach to you? Why is that? Because anything that's man-centered can never bring you into an experience of the holy. It is impossible. It can't do it. And so we reject all those things. We don't want to make the church more like the world. We want to make the church more like heaven is what our goal is. So if you've read this book, here is a very honest confession. You're going to notice this morning that I am borrowing heavily and unashamedly from the treasure chest that is R.C. Sproul's wisdom. We all, Thank you. Will you forgive me for that? I don't think that his writings are on par with Holy Scripture, but I believe that his teaching is thoroughly biblical and that if I were to stand up here for the next 30 minutes or so and read to you directly from the book, I would not have wronged you and I could say nothing better. So there's a humble, honest, vulnerable uh, confession. Though I said that holiness is God's primary attribute, When we examine it, it's not really an attribute at all. Why do I say that? Because we can't just add holiness to the list of his other attributes. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is supreme. God is sovereign. God is holy. It doesn't fit there. Why is that? Because God in the scripture is revealed as holy in an all-encompassing sense. Everything about God is holy through and through. His independence that we talked about a couple weeks ago is a holy independence. The trinity in which he exists is the holy trinity. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. To say that God is holy is to acknowledge his divine supremacy in everything. To say God is holy is literally to say he is God. Holiness means that nothing about God whatsoever could be common or mundane. Holiness is the vast chasm that exists between finite created beings and the uncreated infinite God. That's what holiness is. It's the grand canyon that stands between what we are essentially and what God is essentially. Well, that's interesting, but... Then we got to dig a little deeper, don't we? What is holiness? When we use that word, what are we talking about? Well, most of us, immediately when you hear me refer to holiness, the first thought you have is something having to do with moral purity or moral goodness. Several denominations across the United States identify themselves as holiness movements. And this is what they mean. They are striving for some markers of holiness And they're doing it externally, like demanding that all you women should stop looking like painted hussies and stop wearing makeup. You should wear only floor-length dresses so that this much of your ankles shouldn't drive all the men to lust. You should have severe prohibitions on alcohol, the movies, dancing, secular books, and music. And if you achieve all that, you will be known as holy. There's at least 
two problems. Give me enough time, I'll probably come up with a million. But there's at least two problems with that definition of holiness. Number one, it focuses almost entirely on external things. It, 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 it focuses on appearance and, and what you're projecting outwardly. It does not draw your attention to the inner corruption that lives in every person's heart. It doesn't, you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you guys are like uh, tombs painted white. You look great on the outside, but inside you are full of rottenness with dead men's bones. And that version of holiness only gets you painting the tomb. And you never deal with the rot and corruption on the inside. Second, because of the first reason, it leads us to a very, very superficial definition of what holiness is. Because if I'm dressed right, and if I don't go to the wrong places and only go to the right places, I can hate you in my heart and you still might think I'm holy. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, that is not the way Jesus assesses things, is it? God's holiness certainly involves spotless moral purity, like none of us have ever experienced. But God's purity is an an expression of His holiness and never the basis for His holiness. He is morally good because he's holy. He's not holy because he's morally good. Undoubtedly, God being holy is morally perfect or substantively good. But there's so much more to his holiness. If purity is a secondary meaning of holiness, then we're duty-bound to discover what the word means first of all. What is it about holiness that automatically leads us to conclude that it means goodness, purity, perfection? Well, it's because the word holy, as the Bible uses it, literally means separate. This is over here and the holy is way over here. It comes from an ancient root word that means to cut or to separate. It assures us when we read that God is holy... It assures us that God stands alone in everything that He is, that He is beyond comparison to anything in the created realms, absolutely beyond us. Earlier in this series, I coined the term otherliness, and I think that captures the essence of holiness. Therefore, another word to help us understand what holiness is is the word transcendence. Transcendence means to exceed all normal limits. Applied to God, it means that he is above and beyond this world, that he exercises absolute power over the world, and that the world has absolutely no power over him at all. And so this thought, put those two thoughts together, the thought of transcendent separation communicates this, that God is completely foreign to you. You might say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. Well, no, you haven't. I have, you know, I've believed all this like the rich young ruler since my youth. No, you haven't. Because you started this life on a footing of being completely foreign to God. You didn't understand his culture. You didn't understand his language. You were completely foreign to him. And he had to be revealed to you in some form or another through reading, through preaching, whatever it was, through the Holy Scriptures. 
And then we also have this problem. If holy only speaks of a moral or ethical quality, much of the Bible itself would not make any sense to us. A lot of it. Why is that? Because the Bible refers to many inanimate objects as holy. It calls Jerusalem the holy city. It calls the, the ground where Moses was standing holy ground. It calls the bread that sits in the tabernacle of the temple the holy bread. And these are things, because they're inanimate, that cannot be either morally corrupt or morally upright. They're just things. And so when we see that, and we see that term used in the Bible for inanimate objects, what we learn is that nothing and no one is holy of itself, for itself, or by itself. Nothing is. We only become holy as we are set apart, as we are separated unto God. And we're only set apart in the fullness of revelation through the gospel and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Our text illustrates all these tenets, this this portion Mike read us from Isaiah, it illustrates all these tenets of God's holiness, everything we've said so far. There's three movements in this little text of eight verses. We see in this ver- in these verses a revelation, we see a realization, and then we see a recreation. I should get some preacher points for coming up with three points, all beginning with the letter R. So somebody write that in your Yelp review this morning. All of these things, that this uh, revelation, realization, recreation, are all centered on God's holiness. That's the central piece to this story. So let's look at it again. Open your Bibles back up to Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Isaiah 6, 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The the text begins with Isaiah entering the, the temple, perhaps to mourn Uzziah's passing. What we know about Uzziah, we know quite a bit about him from the from the Old Testament, but he was one of the better kings of of uh, of Judah. Some of the kings of Judah were exceedingly wicked, some of them were exceedingly righteous, and he was he was on the righteous end of the spectrum, although not fully. The Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And Uzziah had reigned, get this, for 50 Two years. Now I'm going to do something. I'm going to take a poll. I'm not going to ask you who's older than 52. That could be offensive. But if you're, if you have not yet ra- reached the age of 52, raise your hand as high as you can. Okay. So good. So most of you. So here's the deal. Uzziah reigned for 52 years. In the last 52 years, we have been under the leadership of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. We have had 10 national leaders in the same time frame that Israel had one, or Judah had one. We, this is an entirely foreign concept to us as Americans. If Richard Nixon were still alive and still president, we would think, this is something wrong. Presidents should last four to eight years. But it was also serious business when a king died. In ancient times, the death of a king could lead to chaos, to absolute trouble. A new king might 
come in and change policies that everyone was used to regarding the military, regarding taxation, regarding the national religion. It happened over and over again in Israel. It, surrounding nations might hear of the king's death and be and, and take advantage of the instability and, and come in and attack. All things, all kinds of things should go wrong. And so it's no wonder for us that Isaiah, who was a nobleman, a prophet who had known the king personally and served him with godly counsel, it's no wonder that he made his way to the temple to seek comfort. And he turned to worship like godly men normally do in the face of such a national loss, such a potential national crisis. And when he arrived to call upon the name of the Lord and to plead for mercy, what happened is, He received a vision. He received a revelation. God had been waiting for him to arrive. God was there already putting his glory on full display. The Bible says that Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. He saw the transcendence that we are so incapable of imagining. Isaiah saw it. And he gives us this detail that the robe of his garments filled the temple. In ancient days, the length of a king's uh, train of his robe indicated his power, his majesty, his importance. And, and Isaiah is telling us that every nook and cranny of that massive temple that Solomon built was literally filled with the, with the garments of God. Do you remember in the Gospels when a lady pressed through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment? Well, the hem of his garment was everywhere in that building. It was everywhere. And when I thought about this this week, I thought, how often have I come to to beg or plead or grovel before God, trying to get his attention, only to find out that he's already sought me out? Man, just a little secret, that's how I got saved. Bigger secret, that's how you all got saved. You might have been scared in some deep life situation and you're crying out to God, but God was already on his way to you before you ever started to pray. He chose you, is what the Bible tells us. In this revelation, heavenly beings appeared. Verse 2 says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. Why this detail about the wings? Well, Isaiah tells us that two of their wings were used quite naturally to fly. But two were used to cover their faces. Why is this? Was this to shield them from having to look on a lowly creature like Isaiah? Or to shield Isaiah from having to look at their their, uh, glory that was glowing off of them? Not at all. These heavenly beings who since the the creation had beheld wonders that our mortal minds could never conceive of, they were shielding themselves from the unfiltered glory of the living God. Though they were spiritual beings, make no mistake, they remained created beings. And as such, they were unable to endure His majesty. It reminds me of in the, in the Old Testament when Moses was standing on Mount Sinai and, and things had just gone haywire, his people were worshiping golden cows and, and he, he said, God, let me see you. And, and we pick up the story in Exodus thirty three eighteen. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But watch verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah tells us that the angels also took two of those wings and covered their feet. In scripture, feet are the are emblematic of our creatureliness. They connect us to this fallen earth, our fallen existence. You'll remember at the burning bush, Moses had been tramping around behind a herd of sheep, and God tells him, take off your shoes, because the ground that you're walking on now is holy ground, because I'm here. When Christ, think about all of that imagery in the Old Testament about feet and their creatureless their creatureliness. And think about this, how when Christ washed his disciples' feet, sometimes we're amazed by the the show of servile uh, humility, and it was certainly that, but that's not all it was. Christ, the God incarnate, the one who had come and, and lived in perfect humanity, but also perfect deity, he was associating with what made his disciples human and earthy and sinful. And he was humbling himself to cleanse their feet. It was a symbol of the cross, what was about to happen. Though the angels dwelt in the highest heaven, they operated on no casual familiarity with Yahweh. They covered their eyes so as not to behold his refulgent glory. They covered their feet to hide their own creatureliness. But just listen, tune your ears and listen to the cry of their eternal song of worship. And one called to the other, Isaiah says in verse 3, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the whole house was filled with smoke. Now, we've talked about this before, but to repeat something like this is a literary device in the Hebrew language. To repeat something twice raises the emphasis to a higher degree. It's like when we're writing and we use bold type or italics or additional exclamation marks. But to repeat something three times raises it to the superlative degree. It's like when we say that something is good, better, best. You'll remember that Jesus in the Gospels would often treat, teach with the word, by, with the introduction of the words, verily, verily, or truly, truly. This was the Aramaic, amen. And amen is where we get the word amen or amen. And it, it means so be it. Let God's will be done. And when Jesus said it, it indicated that his audience should pay particular attention to what was being said because it wasn't just true. It was truly true. By saying that God and shouting and singing that God is holy, 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 the angels declared that nothing exceeds God's holiness. Whether it is hidden or whether it is made manifest like this day in the temple, it is the only time in all of Scripture, search it, cover to cover, when an attribute of God is declared in this way. Not once does the Bible tell us that God is love, love, love. It never once says that God is justice, justice, justice. But what it does say is that God 
is holy, holy, holy. When these words were declared in the temple, even the very environment of the temple responded. The declaration in that place in Solomon's temple registered a 10 on the Richter scale as that massive temple shook beneath the weight of God's glory proclaimed and the smoke of His Shekinah glory filled and overpowered the inner chambers of the temple. But I want you to know something about Isaiah's response. Isaiah didn't boast. He didn't walk out of the the temple and go, Woo, glory, we had a good service today. The Lord really showed up. No, he didn't boast like that. He responded differently than we may imagine. What he did is he came to a sudden, abrupt, and, and painful realization. Verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The veteran prophet, instead of pronouncing God's judgment on sinners outside of Israel or outside the temple, which was their normal mode of operation, calls down judgment on himself because of what his eyes have beheld. He cries, woe is me! This means I'm condemned, I'm damned, I'm done, I'm ruined. He could never be the same again because he's seen God for who he really is. Holy, 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 and it has utterly disintegrated him. I think that the ESV misses something here. It has Isaiah crying out, I'm lost. Other versions in the English language have him saying, I'm ruined. But if you go all the way back to the King James Version, it uses the word, I'm undone. This vision of God completely unravels him. He is coming apart at the seams, as we might say in our modern culture. And the reason for his disintegration is singular. Mine eyes have seen the king. See, Isaiah had wandered into the temple thinking that the king, Uzziah, was dead. But now he's seen the true and only sovereign king. And and seeing them contrast perfect holiness with his own unclean lips and the fact that he dwells among a people who also have unclean lips. Listen to me carefully. You may wonder if you've ever encountered the holiness of God. But the way you know that you've truly encountered the holiness of God is when you see yourselves as you really are. Beyond all of your excuses, beyond all of your defenses, when you see yourselves as utterly wretched, as slaves of iniquity, then you may have some assurance that you've actually encountered God's holiness. It's because His purity illuminates our depravity. His transcendence makes us feel as if we already dwell in hell's inner chambers. His separateness displays how much we share in common with the wickedness around us and are completely unlike God. How many of you want to know some good news in the light of God's holiness? God is determined for those who believe, for those who have faith, not to leave us choking on the dust of our humanity. 
Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. With the holy fire from his altar, which represents the costly blood of Christ for those of us on this side of the covenant, and the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit, he touches us and he cleanses away the filth from our lips and our associations with this fallen world. But take note of this. Don't get some some sterilized version of Christianity. Burning coals hurt. Somebody ought to say amen to that. They hurt. When those coals are pressed to our lips, we may be overwhelmed by a sense of loss, by a sense of pain. Jesus himself spoke of entrance into the kingdom of God by means of persecution, of suffering, of loss. And he promised a cross to all of us. See, it's an American counterfeit gospel that promises ease, healing, and prosperity. But when we are cleansed, how many have been cleansed this morning? When you've been cleansed and you begin to share in His holiness, we find that whatever the pain, it was worth the cost. When our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for, we find that even that nasty smell of burning flesh and the pain that it produces in us and its power when it's burned away and the freedom and joy that ensues are worth any sacrifice to receive these precious gifts. It's through burning coals from the altar, now understood as taking up our cross and following Christ, that we come to share in God's holiness. The holiness of God was revealed to Isaiah in angelic pronouncements and a vision of the awful mystery that is God. It awakened Isaiah to his desperate need for God. He realized that he was ruined beyond any power of self-improvement. There wasn't a Tony Robbins book anywhere that would have fixed what was wrong with Isaiah. The holiness, however that destroyed him utterly, would now redeem him. Praise God. Praise God. I've been destroyed by God's holiness, and I'm grateful to report that I've been redeemed by God's holiness. After his sin was painfully yet thoroughly purged from him, and his guilt was taken away, something marvelous happened. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom? Shall I sin? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Through the holiness of God, he had a glorious, albeit frightening, revelation. He had a devastating realization. And now, by holy grace, he was given a total recreation. The man who moments before was utterly shipwrecked in the shadow of God's holiness was now commissioned as his mouthpiece who would serve other kings and announce with clarity the coming of the Messiah. What a difference. What a difference a genuine revelation of God's holiness makes in us. It's vastly superior to religious rigor. It's vastly superior to flimsy hypocrisy. It's vastly superior to worldly apathy. 
And it will certainly inflict upon us the pain of crucifixion, but it will complete its work of redemption. And it will culminate in a work of recreation. May we revere with all of our hearts the holiness of God. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself as a holy God. Thank you, Lord, that there is none like you. None can be compared to you. God, I thank you that even though we stand on one side of a spiritual Grand Canyon, infinitely wider than the Grand Canyon, yet you built a bridge out of the cross of Christ and have called us to your side. And you have redeemed us and you have recreated us. You said, you said, truly, truly, amen, amen, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. We have been recreated by the holiness and the holy grace of God. And we thank you for that. Lord, help us to pursue your holiness and to settle for nothing in us that is earthy or worldly. Help us to pursue righteousness um, as it's granted to us through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to ask our communion workers to come and help us serve this morning. Um, and we're about to receive um, this, this renewal of the covenant, these uh, sacraments that connect us to the risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that displays God's holiness more than the fact that he became like us to redeem us and to and to open a pathway where we could share in God's holiness. Um, and, and he did it all by himself, and it causes us to realize that there is nothing, as Jonathan Edwards famously said, that we contribute to uh, our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And yet he did it out of, out of holy grace. And so this is a reminder for us, and... and um, but more than that, it's like I said, it's the way that God, the Christ has given us to connect. And even though we're here and he's in heaven and his humanity resurrected to connect with the risen body of Christ and share in what um, Isaiah experienced that day in the temple. And so um, I want to invite you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and share at this table with us. Um, if you're not a believer or if you're not sure you're a believer, please remain where you are. We, I hope from hearing this message today, you know that the holiness of God is by no means something to be trifled with. And uh, the Bible says that those who eat and drink unworthily and eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And so I, I want to encourage you by this fact that we are praying for you. We pray for you every week and that we want to see you come to fully know the Lord Jesus Christ, not just to associate on the, on the outskirts of his people, but to know him and to, and to, to experience his grace and his recreation. Um, and so that, that applies to you, and you want to talk after service, I'd love to do that. Uh, Gabriel would love to do that. And so just make your way to one of us, and we'd love to share with you uh, as much time as you need. For the rest of you, come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat. 
and we'll uh, take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night, the, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's just take a moment and give thanks for what God has done in inviting us into his holiness. God, we thank you. Lord, you are so high and exalted, high and lifted up, as as uh, Isaiah said, transcendent. And yet you have called creatures like us, made from the dust, once fallen and depraved and dead in sin, and you've called us to be at your side, sharing in your holiness, because we are in Christ, the Holy One. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for allowing us to have fellowship with you and to have our lives transformed in the, in the, uh, in the seeing of you, in the, in the working of your Holy Spirit within us. So Lord, help us to, to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position and let me read this benediction from Leviticus chapter 20. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.